being me and my mom, my mom and I, somebody who's more me. grammatically correct, it's mom my mom and, and I. Mom and me. No, because I would say I am back. I wouldn't say me and back, so it'd be my mom and I. My mom, Linda Bridwell, is back. She's putting on her headphones. Hey, mom. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm finer than a frog hair split nine ways. Nine ways. Do you do you enjoy doing the this this podcast? I like talking to you. You like talking to me, but I'm more specifically the art of teshuva. Have you thought more about it since uh, it's our very last podcast? What'd you find interesting? Because I didn't know anything about it. How much it relates? It's a lot like. Uh, it's the same thing as we believe. It's just different words, I think. Well, yeah, and um, I, I, how do I explain this? Uh, it is the same thing we believe because our faith is based on their faith. Yeah, it's just different, put differently. Right, just put differently. Well, this is part two of the art of teshuva, which is this book right here. Um, this is uh, based on the teachings of Rabbi Cook. Uh, in the first video, I told you a little bit about him, that he was a rabbi of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And in the first video, we covered the uh, chapters 1 and 2. In there, he defined what teshuva was. It's basically returning back to the source. My camera is slipping around. It's returning back to the source of our divine creation, who we're divinely supposed to be. So, uh, in there we cover the three stages, and the three stages being uh, healthy, uh, good awareness of who God is, and, well, let me just read it back to you, that way I'm not just trying to come up with this stuff off the top of my head. Three stages of Teshuvah. Three stages of Teshuvah. It's in chapter 2, a healthy body and mind, a healthy orientation to religious belief, an idealistic aspiration to be in line with God's plan for the universe, which leads to the ultimate Teshuvah, which is a Teshuvah out of love. Now, Teshuvah is often defined as penance or repentance, and unfortunately, that's where we stop in the English language when we define it that way. But if you go back to the Hebrew language and you go back to what they saw Teshuvah or what they see Teshuvah as, it's not just being repentant, it's also always trying to be better, always trying to improve your spiritual life. The example I gave is when you were nine years old, you acted like a nine-year-old. When you became 15, if you had continued acting like a nine-year-old, you'd been a very immature 15-year-old, but you continue to grow. Same thing's true with our spiritual faith. Oftentimes we think, oh, well, now you're a person of faith, therefore, let's just, you, you, you've made it. You've made it, and everything's great, which just isn't true. So now we're over here to, did we cover a sudden and and gradual teshuva last time, the differences between that? Yeah, I think we did. Yes, we did. We did. Okay, so now we're in chapter four. Here we're going to talk about specific and general teshuva. In chapter four, it's page 41 if you've got a book and you're studying along with me. There's actually somebody who bought this book. And they're following these podcasts. Really? Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> Rabbi Cook explains that teshuva appears in two different potential forms. Teshuva over specific sins and a general all-encompassing teshuva, which completely transforms a person's whole life. Uh, 
Specific teshuva is commonly referred to as penance or being repentant. I realize I did something wrong. I'm going to stop and I'm going to change my life. It is the teshuva familiar to everyone, whereby a person sins, feels guilty, and decides to redress his wrongdoing. There is a type of teshuva which focuses on a specific sin or many sins. The individual confronts his wrongdoing directly, regrets it, and feels sorry that he was ensnared in the trap of transgression. Then his soul climbs and ascends until he is freed from sinful bondage. He feels in the midst of, his, of a holy freedom, which brings comfort to a weary soul. His hearing proceeds. The glimmers of light of merciful sin, shining with divine forgiveness, send him their rays, and together with his broken heart and feelings of depression, feeling of inner happiness, he gets a feeling of inner happiness and graces his life. I think we've all had that. You know, you realize that something you've been doing is wrong, that's sinful, and um, it's, it's not only hurting you, but it's hurting those around you, and you stop. You know, you come to that realization, and you stop. And a lot of times when we're doing something wrong, that's associated with a, a lot of depression, a lot of anger. And once you begin to do that, he's saying that um, the what we would call the spirit uh, begins to eliminate your life. Uh, you begin to heal, and you begin to come out of that depression as a result of that sin. And, and I think, like you said earlier, that's a common Christian belief. Oh, I put those down because I didn't like them in the background of the shot. She's talking about the picture that was hanging behind me. Uh, yeah, I just noticed them. I thought, what'd you do with them? Yeah, I took the them down. The was empty. They were just pictures of magnolias. I know, but the light was glaring on them. Yeah, excuse him. So, w what he calls this is a healing of remorse. And a lot of times we see remorse as a bad thing. Um, nobody likes to feel bad, but I think one of my professors in college... I think remorse, isn't it? Probably because the remorse, because you realize and you feel bad because you're remorseful. You realize you've done something wrong to someone else. And uh, I think the person that's feeling remorseful is going to feel pain because they actually realize, hey, I, I've hurt this person's feelings or I've damaged this person's relationship or whatever they've said or done, but they have hurt someone else and they come to realize that, yeah, they are remorseful. I think there's pain in being remorseful to the person that's feeling that way. Right, and oftentimes... If they're not, he's not too remorseful, I don't think. Well, that's true. And oftentimes we view feelings of remorse. It's not a good feeling. No. And we view it as something bad. And a professor of mine told me once that all the emotions that you experience in your body and in your soul were put there by your creator. And they're there for a reason. They're not necessarily or inherently bad. They're, you need to look at them as a good thing. Why is this remorse here? Why am I feeling this depression? Why am I feeling this anger? And then dive deeper into your soul to find that healing. Think of it as a check warning light in your car. Say, hey, something's not right here. Let's fix it. Unfortunately, <clears throat> a lot of times we see, oh, something's not right. And all we focus on is just that light. We just That's all we focus on. We don't dig deeper. He's saying here that remorse has a healing power. 
the first sentence in that chapter there, it says, A person whose soul is sensitive to moral wrongdoing will feel remorse for his sins. This comes conviction. That's conviction, what you would call conviction. Unfortunately, there are times in our lives when we're not sensitive to moral wrongdoing. And the scripture calls that when our heart becomes hardened. Yeah, I call it closed-minded, and you just don't want to. Guess it is hard, harder because you don't want to. You don't want to realize it. You don't want to admit I was wrong, or I did something wrong. There's a lot of people out there, even though they know they're wrong, they'll never admit to it. They don't want to admit to it. Mm -hmm. So I guess they are, as you say, could be hard, hard. No. He said, remorse weighs down on him, and he longs to break free from its shackles. If You're right, or he's right here, I believe, that when a soul is sensitive to moral wrongdoing, that remorse does weigh you, and you do want to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And it is enslaving. You get rid of it. Yeah, because it just gets worse. Mm -hmm. It just gets worse. The next chapter, he says, he experiences his happiness at the same time that his heart remains shattered. It goes back to something I said last time. I love the paradox of Scripture. I love the paradox of faith. My heart shattered, but I sense remorse, and as a result of that, I experience happiness because I know that freedom is available to me. And his spirit <clears throat> feels lowly and sad. In fact, this melancholy feeling suits him in this situation, adding to his spiritual gladness and his sense of true wholeness. He feels himself coming closer to the source of life, to the living God, who had been so distant from him a short time before. His longing spirit jubilantly remembers its former inner pain, and filled with emotions of gratitude, he raises his voice in song and in praise. Here he's going to quote uh, the Psalms. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all of his goodness. He forgives all thy iniquities, heals all thy diseases, and redeems thy life from the pit, adorns thee with love and compassion, and satisfies thy old age with good, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord performs righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. It's as if in the midst of this melancholy, in the midst of this sadness, in the midst of this remorse, just coming to the realization that I have this, he's saying the fact that you're just coming to it, that you're recognizing that you have this remorse and this sadness, is part of teshuva, because you also understand, I can go back, uh, as the Hebrew root word of teshuva is return. I can return to that divine source. There is freedom for me. So you get a do-over. You get a do-over. Everybody mm -hmm. wants a do-over. A do-over. Summing, summing up his analysis of specific teshuva, Rabbi Cook describes a journey from darkness to light. How downtrodden was the soul <clears throat> when the burden of sin... In darkness, vulgarity, and horrible suffering lay upon him. How lowly and oppressed the soul was, even if external riches and honor fell in its portion. What good is there in wealth, in life, inner substance is poor? When, <clears throat> what good is there in wealth if life's inner substance is poor and stale? How joyful the soul is now with inner conviction, your word, that its iniquity has been forgiven, that God's nearness is living and glowing inside it that its inner burden has been lightened, that its debt of atonement has already been paid. I like that phrase. Yeah. It's yeah. already been paid. And that it is no longer anguished by inner turmoil or oppression. The soul is filled with the rest, with rest and rightful tranquility. 
Return to thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. There he's quoting the 116th Psalm. Um, even they have this idea, and we often think of it as a Christian idea, but they have this idea that this debt's been paid. I don't have to wrestle with this. I just got to return back to my source, where my freedom is, where my joy is, uh, that, that divine creation I'm supposed to be. Now there's a psychiatry or teshuva. Um, modern psychiatry and all of the popular books on the subject offer a gamut of explanations, solutions, treatments, and cures. They too promise catharsis and joy. But all too often, after some initial relief, the patient is back on the couch or in the bookstore searching for the newest bestseller. <clears throat> He's going to go on to explain that psychiatry, which I recommend, is, is a good first step. But it's not the final step, and oftentimes a lot of people just keep going back, going back. Hey, I had some initial relief, but now i got to go back. As a matter of fact, he writes this. While psychiatrists offer many theories about man's existential dilemma and angst, Rabbi Cooks reveals that the real cause of humanity's malaise stems from mankind's severance from God. The solution, he teaches, is teshuva. In other words, there's another step you got to look at this as, I'm returning back to my divine source. Not that I just need immediate healing for right now. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, when you're wounded, you know, you clean it, you put a band-aid on it, sometimes you might need a little bit more. There's another step. If you don't keep cleaning it, if you don't keep taking care of it, it's just going to come right back. Was you going to say something? Process. It's a process, right? It's a process. Now, general teshuva. <clears throat> there's another type of feeling of teshuva, a vague general teshuva. Past sin or sins do not weigh on a person's heart. Rather, he has a general feeling of profound inner depression, that he is filled with sin, that God's light does not shine on him, that there is nothing noble in his being. He senses that his heart is sealed and that his personality and traits are not on the straight, desirable path that is worthy of gracing a pure soul with a wholesome life. I get this to you way. ever felt that way? I get this way all the time. It's kind of like I'm stuck. Yeah, I call stuck. I call I'm in a rut. Right. I can't dig myself out. I just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Right. I'm not doing anything wrong, but I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. I, I, it's just like, yeah, I'm just stuck in life. I need I need something to shake it up. I need to go. But then again, when you do something to shake it up, how do you know what you're doing to shake it up is the right thing? When you're so down and out, you don't you don't know. You can't determine what's right and what's wrong. And you know, you, I want to do something to shake my life up and get myself going. I think I think Rabbi Cook would say, "Is that something you're about to do in line with the divine?" Well, when you're that depressed, it, you don't care. Well, we're talking about two different things. Oh. So when you're depressed and you're in that point, you don't care. But he's talking about when you're just in this point where life is just kind of meh. I'm not depressed. I'm just me. Eh. Well, sometimes you don't I just care need to do either. You just think uh, that sometimes. Yeah, this is where I'm at, and that's the life I've got, and this is what's I got to deal with it, and I don't want to. I don't. And wanna. I ain't gonna. <laughs> okay, let's see what else he says. Maybe he addresses this. All right. He feels that his intellect. I did. <laughs> that was my fault. Uh, he feels that his intellectual insights are primitive, and his emotions are mixed. I just lost every bit of that on video, so let's just stop the video. We'll keep with the audio. 
I hit the wrong button again. That's what happens when you start playing with buttons. I know. I, I need someone else. To play with the button. I do. I need someone else to do the buttons. Let's make sure Audacity's still running. Yep, it is. All right. Back. Chapter four, Page 46. Chapter 4. He feels that his intellectual insights are primitive and that his emotions are mixed with darkness and lust, which awake within him a spiritual repulsion. He is ashamed of himself. He knows that God is not within him and that his greatest anguish, his most frightening sin, he is embittered with himself. He can find no escape from his snare, which involves no specific wrongdoing. Rather, it is as if his entire being is imprisoned in dungeon locks. Like I said, there's nothing specific going on. I'm just not where I need to be. Uh, and emphasizing... She's letting the dogs out. And emphasizing that Teshuvah is the cure for mankind's anxiety and depression, we do not intend to negate the contributions of psychology in its related fields. Psychology has its place. I like that. And I like they're not saying, hey, it's it's all God and forget it. And I, I really get irritated by people who, who, who go that route. Just pray about it. Just trust God and everything will be okay. Uh, there's... Psychology has its place. However, while childhood traumas influence behavior and cause great confusion and pain, when they are finally uncovered and resolved, the catharsis which results is only a step along the way. Back to Mom's point, it's a process. Back to the book. Until an individual erases all of the neurosis or barriers which separate him from God, he will remain estranged, estranged from himself imprisoned in darkness, living either like an unfeeling zombie or depression and pain. Psychology and its branches can give him a start, but ultimately, the only real cure is teshuva. Rabbi Cook explains just how the healing takes place. With each passing day, powered by his, this lofty general teshuva, his feeling becomes more secure, clearer, enlightened, and with the light of intellect, and more clarified according to the foundations of Torah, Torah being the Old Testament, teachings. His, de his demeanor becomes brighter. His anger subsides. The light of grace shines on him. He becomes filled with strength. His eyes are filled with a holy fire. His heart is completely immersed in springs of pleasure. Holiness and purity develop, envelop him. A boundless love fills all of his spirit. His soul thirsts for God, and this very thirst satiates all of his being. It's pretty. It is pretty. It's a beautiful idea. It's very deep. It's very deep. <clears throat> um, the Holy Spirit rings before him like a bell, and he is informed that all of his willful transgressions, the known and the unknown, have been erased. Not will be erased. Have been. Have been erased. That he has been reborn as a new being. That all the world and all creation were reborn with him that all existence calls out in song and that the joy of God infuses all. Great is Teshuva, for it brings healing to the world. And even one individual who repents is forgiven, and the whole world is forgiven with him. You're going to see this uh, theme throughout this book, this idea that when I am part of Teshuva, that that brings healing not only to me, but to those around me. And not only to those around me, but to the world, in fact. And so I think that's just a beautiful phrase. 
I like the idea too that Rabbi Cook discusses here where he says that once you get to this point where you start this process of teshuva, that you realize it's always been there, this forgiveness, this grace, this joy. It's always been there. You're just returning to it. Um, and in returning to it, that beautiful picture that he paints there that fills your soul. When you were talking about it affects others. Yes. And it does. You know, when you're depressed and down and out, and you're miserable. It's kind of like misery loves company. It does. And uh, you don't like to be around me when I'm one of my moods. I don't like to be around you when you're in one of yours because it's just kind of, it attaches. It's like glue, you know. It it's can, infectious. Yeah, it can bring, bring other people, people down. But when you get that feeling that you're talking about, of that refulfillment, you you just seem to glow. Your whole persona just glows, and people can see that in your life, in your face, in your features. I think. Well, and you often hear people. Everybody's everybody's been there. Everybody's had good good days. They've had good moments in their life. They've had times where they just felt like, yeah, everything's clicking, and I'm going the right way in my life. And then you get to this depression, depression part. Nothing uh, goes right. And nothing goes right. And you feel like the whole world is against you. He's saying that by understanding Teshuvah, you have this understanding that I can go back to that source. I can go back to that feeling. I can go back to that joy. It's always been there. And it's always going to be there. It's just a matter of me saying, okay, let's get my life right and begin this process of going back. And is it an automatic path? Not always. I mean, it's it's like walking through the woods. You can't take a straight path. There's going to be detours. you got to come back uh, and reorient yourself from time to time to get to where you're going. And again, the process. Chapter 5 is titled, Teshuva Makes the World Go Round. Now, Queen obviously would disagree with that because they say fat bottom girls make the world go round. <laughs> but... Rabbi, get them fat bottom girls in there. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Rabbi Cook was well before them. He says Teshuva makes the world go round. I'll agree with him. You'll agree with him. Yeah. Uh, before the world was created. Now, this is interesting. If we go back to the creation story and we think about what he's saying here, the Germana teaches that Teshuva existed before the world was created. That's Ra because God existed. Right. And Teshuva is a part of. The divine creation. He says it's part of it. Rabbi Cooks writes that the spirit of Teshuvah hovers over the world and gives it its basic form and motivation to develop. It is Teshuvah which gives the world the direction and its energy to constantly progress. The desire to refine the world and to embellish it with beauty and splendor all derive from the spirit of Teshuvah. If you go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning. Right. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God, and the Spirit hovered over the earth. It's there, God. Right. Teshuvah is the divine spiritual force in the universe, which is constantly propelling all of existence toward perfection. It is the voice of God calling, Return to me, you children of men. And that's a quote out of uh, Psalm 90. We have this idea in, in spirituality uh that the earth is trying to return back to the state 
than it was in the beginning, that the garden. We have this idea in eschatology, that eschatology being the study of end times, that the earth is going back, that God is bringing everything back to what it intended it to be at the creation. We have this idea of the tree of life in the garden. So that's what he's saying there, that God created the earth to do that. The force of Teshuvah, like gravity in the physical world, is built into the inner fabric of life. It stands as impetus behind, it stands as the impetus behind all human history, all world development, all endeavor towards social improvement. Um, that's hard sometimes when we look at our life because we're here for just a short piece of time and you think, oh, the world is so horrible right now. But it's not as bad as it used to be. We've progressed in history. We don't have... Um, we don't have human sacrifices like we used to do. We don't have uh, public hangings like in this country that we used to do. We don't have slavery like we used to do. I mean, we've been progressing. Is it is it where it needs to be? Our life and our world and our country and our community? No, but it's a whole lot better than it used to be. And he says that's because of Teshuvah. I think a lot of that stuff that you just mentioned in today, in this world, may not be a physical hanging or physical, but it's verbally <coughs> killed. Well, that happens. Or whatever, you know, you can, some people can disagree. I disagree because uh, I liked my life a whole lot better when I was growing up. I liked my... It was simpler. It was simpler. Uh, it was harder work. It was simpler. The values and morals were totally different, totally, totally different then. And um, second, some people disagree. I like if I can go back to the time when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah, I'd go back. Well, somebody said the other day that uh, I can't. The that when I was a kid, I said I can't wait to be an adult. It was probably the dumbest thing I ever said in my life. Oh, this is true. I remember that. I remember saying when your dad and I got married. They'd come to the door and say, well, hi there. Can I see your mom? And I'm thinking, I am the mom. And now, I'm like, gee, I'm really the mom. But things were different then. Your life was different. And I think the values of life and the morals, the morality was totally different. So why is that? I'd rather have the morality and the values that we had when I was growing up than the convenience that you have now. Mm. And the, the, the hangings, and that was wrong, that was wrong well, accusations, they're wrong accusations today. Right, but you also had segregation when you were growing up. We not don't in have family. That. Not in your family, but in the community. I didn't know what segregation was, to no, be honest. Didn't. And they were talking about segregating and and I thought, but you didn't have the rights. <clears throat> Women didn't have the rights that they have today when you were growing up. I know some of those rights we still don't need, but <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> well, that could be debated. But the uh, it would be a god debate. Yeah, it would. But but so women's rights have improved. Children's rights have improved. Working conditions have improved. Uh, working conditions are a lot safer than they used to be. So there's a lot of things, although you can go back and say, yeah, these were great things in my childhood that I wish I could have back or that I wish was there. There's also th things that were going on 
Well, for example, you've told me oftentimes that your dad didn't think a, a woman needed more than an eighth grade education. No, because thought we were forced to be a wife and have youngins. So, do you want to go back to that? I mean, you have granddaughters. Do you want them to get educations? Well, that's not a fair question. You're talking about my grand. <laughs> I'm talking about me. <laughs> right. <clears throat> oh, well, you. Oh. Don't you wish your dad had had a different view on that and encouraged you to go forward in education and life? So there are things that have gotten better. And so, yeah. You bring out stuff that, yeah, they are. All right. I'll have to say you're right. So let's go back to the book. Okay. Teshuvah derives from the yearning of all existence to be better, purer, more fortified, and elevated than it is. Hidden with this desire is a life force capable of overcoming that which limits and weakness and weakens existence. The personal teshuva of an individual is even more so of the community. Uh, is even more so of the community. It draws its strength from the source of life, which is constantly active, with never-ending vigor. <clears throat> uh, never-ending, huh? So let's keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Like the energized bunny, just keep it on. <laughs> keep on trucking. In his writings, Rabbi Cook illuminates the phenomenon of teshuva in an entirely new fashion, as an ever-active force in the world which constantly works to unite all things with God. Teshuva, Rabbi Cook describes teshuva like a sun, which sends out constant flames of warming light to the world. Just as God has created the sun as life's principal energy source, so too is Teshuvah the spiritual energy source of existence. Teshuvah does not only operate when a person decides to mend his erring ways. Teshuvah exists all the time. So Teshuvah isn't something that's just unique to you. No, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. And just because you're not practicing Teshuvah or you're not experiencing Teshuvah in your spiritual life doesn't mean Teshuvah isn't working on you. True. And so that's where he goes on to say, um, like gravity or the wind or the rays of the sun, Teshuvah is ever-present. It is a constant force always at work, bringing the world to completion. One day the force may be hit, may hit Jonathan. The next day, Miriam. One day soon it will uplift the Jewish people as a whole. Its waves flow by us in a continuous stream, minute by minute. The song of Teshuvah calls out to us to hurry and join in the flow. I like that imagery. This idea that this river of Teshuvah is going. Whether I'm in it or not, it's going. But it's inviting me to be a part of it. Um, now that we understand that Teshuvah is an independent force which God has implanted into the fabric of creation, we must ask... What does it do if it's in creation? We understand what it can do within us, but what's it do with it if it's in creation? Rabbi Cook emphasizes that the soul grows toward, grows toward perfection. The soul has a built-in motor that guides it toward per perfection. The perfection it seeks is the union with God. This is what King David is, is expressing when he says, Of thee my heart, he said, Seek my presence, thy presence, Hashim, I will seek. Hashim's another name for God. Everybody's got that feeling within them. You always ask people, why, people always ask, why am I here? What, what's my purpose in life? And he would say, your purpose is to experience God. It's to experience that Teshuvah. Your purpose is once you experience that, that overflowing from that gives you your purpose in life.
What empowers the soul to seek out its maker? And I think a lot of people are, but they don't know it. They don't define it as that. They may even go so far as to say that they don't believe in God, that they're an atheist, but they're seeking out something within them, that purpose of life. And um, they just call it by a different name. What empowers the soul to seek out its maker? What gives it fuel for the quest? The power of teshuva. Though the force of teshuva, through the force of teshuva, all things return to God. He's coming back to this, this idea of returning, that teshuva is in the process of bringing all things back to what they were divinely created to be. Before continuing, it is beneficial to say a few words about the concept of returning to God. What does this mean? Where have we gone that we need to return? The soul in its essence belongs to the world of souls. When it is placed in this world, in a physical body, it naturally longs to go home. One of the great innovations of Judaism is the teaching that this reunion is not limited to the return of the soul to heaven after the death of the body. Unlike other religions, Judaism teaches that the soul can find union with God in this world. I love that. And if you go on forward into the New Testament, to the teachings of Jesus, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can experience it in this life. You can experience union with God here. You don't have to wait until you're dead. Um, I often cringe when I go to churches and they start speaking of heaven as if it's something that's way out in the future after I die. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I think Jesus was saying you can experience it here. I mean, you go to the Sermon on the Mount, you go to some of his other teachings, you can have that in this life. I agree. You agree. Good. To Rabbi Cook, Teshuvah and redemption share the same direction. Redemption. It brings that. Teshuvah and redemption share the same direction and goal. To bring healing to a suffering world. Redemption is the ever-active historical process which brings the nation of Israel and the world to perfection and completion. <clears throat> this idea of redemption, I guess before I started going deeper into the Old Testament and Jewish thought, I always thought those concepts were uniquely Christian. Um, I'm finding out these concepts are as old as from the beginning of time, that it's always been there. Teshuvah and redemption are parallel processes reaching the same destination. Though there are differences between them, these two phenomena are closely intertwined so that when Rabbi Cook speaks about the teshuvah of the entire world, he is speaking about its overall moral, material, and spiritual redemption. As we learn, mankind is, is always involved in teshuvah. The fact that there are many non-religious people today should not be held up as a contradiction. This is what we were going to earlier, you know, well, look at all these horrible things that are happening today. You're telling me that teshuva is at work? Here's a story about Rabbi Cook that may help illustrate this. One day, Rabbi Cook was walking in the old city in the city of Jerusalem with another rabbi, <clears throat> one of the leading rabbis of an Orthodox community. Look how awful our situation is, the rabbi observed. See how many secular Jews there are in our city? Just a few generations ago, their fathers were all Orthodox Jews. Back to your point, just a few generations ago, we had better morals, we had better situations. Um, 
one must look at Israel in a wider perspective. Rabbi Cook answered, Do you see this valley over here? The Valley of Hinnom? This was once a site for human sacrifice. Today, even the crassest secularist will not offer his child as human sacrifice for any pagan idea. When you look at today's situation in the span of all history, things do not seem so bad. On the contrary, you can see that there has been great progress. So that goes back to my point earlier. In the 1950s and 60s, we were in the midst of, um, of rights for a various amount of people. You'll see a lot of people today on social media as if we're still fighting those same battles. We are. We are. But we have come so far. We have. We have come so far. Uh, we are fighting those same battles. I think, uh, I think our country is lacking with a lot of stuff, you know, I, I, I would like to find a way to get our morals and our values back into our society, uh, why they're not there, you know, where did they go? Uh, I, I will tell you one one thing that happened in the 70s was um, religion becoming political. Yeah. Where we have that church and state thing? I don't know, but in, in the 70s, there was a lot of famous religious leaders that got heavily involved in politics. Yeah. And then started heavily influencing politics. Yeah. And the moral right or whatever it is. And a lot of churches jumped on board with this. And sort of heavily influencing politics. Well, then the other side, who didn't want religion in there, didn't want our laws based on all these things, well, that just inflamed it and made it worse. If I'm taking what this book of Teshuva is teaching me is, is look, our influence isn't political. Do we have a political influence? Yes. But we don't do it. That's not the route we go. We go how we live our life. We go how we live our life in our community, how we treat people. And first, we have to get our life together first. And there's a lot of people out there whose life isn't together, and they're fighting that battle politically. They get on Facebook and they post all these things because, well, God said, and their own spiritual life isn't together. If their own spiritual life was together, they probably wouldn't put something out there so crass and so quickly and so ugly. They would just be living their life for other people and, and, and helping other people. But we, as, as society, have allowed this to happen. Right. And um, we've let our government take away, I think, some of our uh, rights. When I was growing up, we had Bible in school. You know, sometimes it's, that's only, the only Bible a lot of kids ever hear. It's when that Bible teacher come in once a week and taught us a Bible story. They didn't hear nothing else. We've taken that away. We've taken a lot of our... We've taken a lot of our rights away. The government has. So I'd like to see you get back to that. I would like to see it. I'm not a fan of the Bible in school. Um, Why? Because I don't want the Quran being taught in school. See, there that is. They, they go and say, right, you can't teach this if you don't teach that. If you teach this, you got to teach that. Well, and I don't, and 
and whose whose role is it? Here's the other reason I'm not paying it. Whose role is it to teach the child spiritual values and morals? Well, it's a fam it's a it's a family. It's a home. But if the home's not doing it, somebody needs to. Okay, but whose role is it to get that family to do it? It um, comes down to me. Yeah, mine. It comes down to me and the way I live my life and how I influence people. And if my life's not where it needs to be spiritually, then the people around me's life isn't where it needs to be spiritually. And if the people around me's life isn't where it needs to be spiritually, then my community isn't where it needs to be spiritually. It comes down to individual responsibility. Um, over and over in the New Old Testament, you're going to hear the purpose for the nation of Israel isn't just to be God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people for one reason and one reason alone, to be a light into the world and to draw all people to God. Um, now, if we're going to say that we're followers of God, that we're part of that divine creation, and that divine story, that we're children of God, our role is to be a light into the world and to draw people to God. We can't do that if we're not healthy spiritually. If we're not practicing or being a part of what he calls this teshuva, that divineness that's within all creation. Um, do you think that's a, a difficult job for Christians to do? The way our world is today, whether your spirituality is where it should be or not? Of course it's a very difficult job. I mean, it's life. Life isn't easy. Right? Some people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear. Well, some people don't want to take necessary steps. It's easier to do the Bible, the what I call bumper sticker theology. It's easier to sit down and just, well, I went to church and I read my Bible than it is to dig deep. Than it is to say, okay, the first part of teshuva is I need to get healthy. You know, you know years ago, years ago, I guess even when you were little, uh, there was a big uh, visitation top thing, you know. They would go and then meet people and go to their houses and, and knock on the doors. Well, you can't do that today. Good. People don't want me doing that. I don't want you doing that, and I don't want to do that. I don't think that's the – I don't – I'm not convinced God wants us doing that. Well, I know that faith program your dad took. Yeah. To me, that was, that was good for him, not necessarily for him to go to different doors, door to door, but it gave him the uh, tools when the opportunity the opportunity came that he was equipped to use to witness and to lead. Right. But I think a lot of people think some of these things is oh it's here I've got to go door to door I've got to knock and cram his stuff down their throat. Or sit on the side of the road in, in, in the middle of a town and just start preaching. Well, I don't want nobody cramming nothing down my throat. Nope. And so I'm not a I'm not a fan of that. I am a fan of what he's talking about and what more and more people are talking about on social media today is that personal responsibility. Let me get my life in order first. Once I, I get my life in order, then I'll be able to help other people get their lives in order. I think if people see your life and the light shining through your life and they look at you and think, what's he got that I don't have? Then they're going to start wondering. Correct. and But we don't. And then they'll want it. And I, I can't say this. With definite certainty, because I don't attend a lot of churches, but the churches that I have attended, one thing I have noticed is it's always about how other people's lives are in order. I remember I sat in one church one time, and I thought, wow, that's a great sermon to everybody who's not here. And they're not teaching about how to get our life in order. They're not teaching about how we need to be healthy. They're not teaching how we need to have a 
how the even though we're seeking help through self-help books and psychology and psychiatry, that, that's a good step. But here's where it's going to. They're not teaching those things. So how are you going to teach if they don't show up? Well, I'm talking about to the people who's shown up. Oh. They're not teaching that to the people who's showing up. They're teaching about all the sins that they want to teach about and how horrible these people who aren't here are and what's going on. But they're not giving the people here the tools. Well, the church is not for the Christians. It's for the lost. No, no, it's for both. That's like saying Teshuvah is only for uh, somebody who's of faith. No, it's for both. It's to draw me closer and to be that light to the world. So when you have a, and that's the frustrating thing about the churches is I, you know, sometimes I sit down and listen to some of these pastors and just like, dude, help me get past this melancholy that I'm going through. Does that mean, and I keep going back to this healthy thing. You don't ever hear them teaching about that. About, look, when you start doing that, you feel better. Your mind's clear. When you put down some of these sugars and these poisons that we're putting in our body, you start going for a walk, and that walk results in you meditating and you thinking and you growing mentally and spiritually. Then you start to understand these other teachings in Scripture, and they start to make more sense and start to become more enlightened about them. No, let's get up there and let's just preach about the latest political thing that's going on or the latest controversy that's going on and what God's word says about that, which they often take out of context. And they're just, they're just trying to, I don't know, I guess they're just trying to fill time. But Not all preachers do that. I didn't say all. So the unity of creation. But how does one man's teshuva bring redemption closer? How does one person's remorse over having stolen some money bring healing to the cosmos as a whole? The answer is that one is to look to one is to look on each individual, not as a separated unit from the rest of the world, but as a being integrally united with all of creation. A man is not a fragmented being disconnected from the past and the future. He is part of the continuity of generations. He is part of the national history and a sweeping world drama in the same way that he is a product of his past. He is also a seed of the future. When a man sees himself in this wider perspective, the teshuva he does for personal sins is magnified by his connection to all generations. Thus, his personal teshuva is uplifted by the general teshuva of the world, which strengthens his own drive to do good. I like this idea. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, it says there's a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, I like this idea because, you know, part of the ethos of the Marine Corps is, hey, I'm not just a Marine today. I'm a Marine because of the ones who were here before me, and I'm a Marine for the Marines who are here to come after me. When you start understanding Teshuvah and that it's part of a greater thing, that it's part of something bigger than yourself, that, that me becoming a better person and me returning to that source is part of a greater story, that's how it influences a nation. And I love that imagery. I, I love the imagery going back to that whole idea of the tree of life that's in a lot of re religions, your roots, the roots of the tree are, is the past. It's what's, it's what's built you. It's what's fed you. It's what's strengthened you. It's what gives you your foundation. Your, some people call it your ancestors, but it's that which came before you that, that allows you to have that strength. The trunk of the tree is you now in this life. 
and then the branches as it goes up above, and that's what's producing seed and shade and all these things for the future. And that's the tree of life. That's teshuva. You're part of something greater than yourself. Uh, here's another imagery he gives to it. Like a stone thrown into a pool, his individual teshuva sends waves of teshuva rippling through all the realms of life, from his family and immediate surroundings to his community, his nation, and the world. Because his soul is attached to the soul of the world, in purifying his soul, he helps purify all realms of being. And there's a footnote down here, and I would recommend that when you're reading a book and it's got footnotes, check them out. Rabbi Cook writes, an individual's existence is connected to universal existence by a very strong bond. When a part of his existence is elevated, all of his existence is automatically lifted, lifted up with it. In this way, every good deed, he truly improves countless worlds. When a person embraces this understanding, his mind is expanded and his contemplations come closer and closer to the truth. Page 64, it's the last page of chapter 5. When a man understands that his personal teshuva advances the redemptional process of the world, his motivation to mend his own life is enhanced. His personal teshuva expands beyond his life's limited boundaries and brings benefit to all mankind. It's drawing closer to the divine's true plan, to God's true plan for me, that I realize I'm part of a bigger picture. And that my actions have an impact on that greater story. That I can either be part of this story that, that, brings, that helps bring the world back to how God intended it, or I could be out there miserable because I'm not. Um, I like that. What do you think about that? Pretty good. Well, that was chapter four and five. We're almost at an hour. I don't know if I want to do chapter six. It's not that long. Well, Mom, thanks. You're welcome. All right, folks, we'll be back. Say bye, Mom. Bye. Have fun. Enjoy. <laughs>